Warning, this episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. My name is Fiona Doyle. I am a survivor of historic sex abuse and an avid campaigner. This is Shattered Lives, an Irish Daily Star podcast. I'm Paula Healy. Fiona Doyle was just eight years old when her father abused her on the day of her first Holy Communion. Patrick O'Brien would eventually admit in court to the systematic rape and abuse of his daughter over a nine-year period. He was jailed in 2013 for that abuse and has now been released. In that time, Fiona has become a beacon of light and hope for many survivors of abuse. Through her own lived experience, she has seen with her own eyes the pluses and minuses of the Irish justice system. Fiona believes that there simply isn't enough support for victims and she has strong views about how the system should handle monsters like her father. Fiona sat down with us for this podcast to discuss all of that, what she went through at the hands of her father, and what she believes has to be done to protect children from abuse in the future. Fiona, a lot of people will be familiar with your your case, um, but for those that are perhaps unfamiliar with it, you were abused by your father, Patrick O'Brien, and he was jailed. He was jailed for it. He's now been released. Um, that abuse. When did it start? Um, it started when I was, I think, three or four. But he only pleaded guilty to when I was seven. So that's why um, it centered around my communion a lot, because that's as far back as he pleaded guilty to. But I think a lot of people wouldn't even be familiar with that. I mean, as I say, from the case, it was from when you were eight years of age. But as you say, it, it was actually earlier than that. It started earlier than that. Yes, it was. It was, um, like I said, three, three, four. I remember the the very first time it happened, I actually carried a cup of coffee up to him. So I'd say I was close to, say, four because I, I managed to get this cup of coffee. My mother told me to put it up to him in the bedroom. And that was when the, the first, very first time it happened. It, it, it's such a horrible thing that obviously happened to you and, and nobody uh, can ever possibly imagine it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a unique experience to every victim of abuse. But how have you, um, over the years, dealt with that? And uh, you're still dealing with it to this day. Just the, the fact that you your childhood was taken away from you like that. Yeah, I, I don't have any um, happy memories. I don't have something that I can reflect back on and think, oh, that was great. Um, every day I, I suffer with flashbacks, like some simple things. Um, coffee, because I carried that cup of coffee up to him. Um, I can be shopping and I'd look at batch bread or I'd look at Kerrygold butter um, or somebody talk about a beach. I live on the south of Ireland, so it's pretty nice and sunny. And everybody talks about going to a beach and that brings back um, horrible memories. So every day it's a battle to um, suppress these memories. Sometimes I'll suppress it. Sometimes I just kind of sit back and, and just let it happen to to deal with it, to get over it in a sense. Um, I found some of it useful. A lot of people wouldn't find it um, like a tool because I would be able to go back and, and uh, think of finer details. I can a flashback. I'll be able to remember. Well, what was he wearing? What was the smell? Um, try and figure out what I was wearing. Uh, how old I was. So I, I used a bit of it to my advantage in a sense. But well, that's interesting, though. That like a lot, the smallest of things can trigger a memory for you. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, that's the way it works. Yeah. Um, the smell of cigarettes is a, is a horrible thing for me. Um, um, body odor, that was another thing that I had. Big, I have big difficulty with. So, and and you you would imagine that um, people find it very hard to comprehend because they won't remember um, what it was like um, to smell something as a child. But that's because that particular thing didn't traumatize them that much. So. Um, People who haven't experienced it uh, find what I'm speaking about very hard to comprehend. 
and it, it's all to do with trauma. If you're traumatized somewhere or something traumatized you, you will remember every detail of that. Can you remember the first time that you that you said to yourself, I'm, I'm going to go to the guards about this. I'm going to get something done about this. Um, I had decided uh, back in the 1990s to go to the guards uh, because I was um, starting counselling and I had been attending a social worker. I had had um, children and I was finding it very difficult to deal with my emotions when you're um, dealing with, with emotions, um, it's like it comes back and kicks you in the stomach because not only um, do you have to deal with your own personal emotions, but you have to deal with what it brings up for you. And usually when you're down, that comes coming back in, in droves. So I decided back in the 1990s to approach the guards. And my main issue was the fact that um, my parents adopted a daughter belonged to me. And she was turning three and three was the trigger for me. And I had been in Hollis Street Hospital. I was talking about my past as you give your history. And I broke down crying and I admitted it to somebody then. And um, a social worker then was um, appointed to me. And it was her uh, encouragement to try and um, help me deal with it, to bring this out to the open as well as attending a psychologist. Had you blocked a lot of it from your memory at that point or just kind of put it to one side before that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it was all self-preservation. You, um, It was how I protected myself when I first came out of it. Like when I, when I first came out of the abuse, I was only 17, going on 18. And then I was pregnant at 19 and had a baby. So, so much was happening. So for me to to deal with having my first baby, I had to put it aside and put it out. So it was almost like it was a secret from me, this abuse. So it was only when that baby turned three. Um, she turned three in the March and I was in Hollis Street in the April. And I was going through a rough few weeks, not realising that this was happening to me that this is what what the trigger was or anything like it. It's only now I realise it. Um, and I admitted it in Hollow Street. So um, then the second time, the, the first investigation was never investigated, which I thought it was, but it turned out it wasn't. I only found that out on the second time I approached the guards. And um, I approached the guards the second time because the daughter that I had given to my parents um, to adopt. She had a daughter and that daughter, they were living with my father and she was turning three. And that's what the second trigger was for me. And when was that case progressed? When did it get to the point where your father was arrested? He was arrested. I went to the guards in um, 2010, October of 2010, and they start investigating the case. And of course, my father was did a voluntary in, interview and he denied the abuse. He denied all knowledge of it and uh, family members were interviewed. Everybody denied everything. But then as things progressed, uh, two years into the investigation, when they started finding um, medical files, they found the file in regards to me having an STI when I was 13. They found files in regards to the physical abuse. Um, I was hospitalised over that. So as they start finding things and things start coming to light, my brothers and sisters started, my brother stepped up then and said, I'm going to go to the guards and tell the guards the truth. And my father found out about this. So it wasn't until August of 2012 that my father then decided that I'm going to go to the guards and I'm going to tell them the truth that I did do this. And it was only then that they arrest him and charge him. So that was August 2012, two years later. And we were in court then in the September of 2012. The reality of that is that that, that case really only progressed in the manner that it did because, no, well, the mount, there was mounting evidence, but your father admitted it. Your Your father did eventually say, okay, I am guilty of this. And that is what progressed it quite quickly. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what 
progressed it from getting from August into the uh, circuit court, um, the district court, sorry, in in the uh, September, and the district court then sent it to the central criminal courts then September, and it went straight then into sentencing. Lucky enough. And what? How much of a, of a relief was it for you? to uh to not have to go through a trial and have to go through the rigorous proving of everything and to have to constantly bring up all those memories again how much of a relief was it to to not have to go through that it it was a huge relief because um on one occasion i remember um they'd interviewed my father and i had i always would meet with the detective afterwards and i went up one day to meet with the detective with my husband and um, the detective was reading out the questions he'd asked my father and the answers my father gave. And I remember the um, one particular question was, how do you know she was seven? Because he was admitting as far back. And he replied, and this sounds awful, but he replied, um, well, I put my fingers up inside her and um, she was bleeding. And... I was sitting in front of this man and he was telling me this. I was sitting in the company of my husband and I was so shocked at how casual my father said this and how casual he answered this. And I I left the police station and I sat outside in the car for about 20 minutes, crying my eyes out to my husband and saying, I can't do this. I can't have my sons hear this. How can I sit in a courthouse with all these strangers and listen to this coming out. And for about 45 minutes, that's how I felt. But then my anger kicked in and I take strength from my anger. And I decided, actually, hell no, you are not going to do this to me. You are not going to try and put the fear of God in into me to make me back out of this. I, I knew I needed to for the sake of my children and future grandchildren, I needed to prove I wasn't lying. And that was the most important thing to me. Not how he was going to make me feel, not my fear, even though my fear was huge. I wasn't going to let him use that against me. In many ways, like it's quite telling to your father's psyche that, you know, we're saying he pleaded guilty, but in his mind, a lot of what he was saying he did, he felt justified or felt, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that was his mentality, wasn't it? That he didn't see what the big deal was with sexually abusing his own daughter. Yeah, he spoke about it like it was so casual. But but that's how, that was how it was spoke about in our house. It was spoke over the kitchen table. It was spoken about so casually, like um, it was nothing. And his attitude um was the same attitude that was bred into everybody in my family, as in my brothers and sisters. So nobody saw it as rape of a child. Nobody saw it uh, any way like that. It was, you know, and he he pleaded guilty for his own for his own sake because he didn't want the details brought out in public, and. He that's why he did it. It wasn't for me. It wasn't for concern for me or it wasn't concern for um, anything else, only himself. And and but that's what they're like. That's what rapists are like. It's they're they're narcissistic. It's all about them and it's all about their feelings. And to this day, like he actually now, if you said to him, did you rape your daughter? He'd say no. No, I didn't. I I recall uh, um, confronting him. We 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 did. Uh, I won't say interview, but we confronted him upon his release from prison in twenty nineteen, and um, yeah, and he did actually say, he did actually say, I didn't, I didn't rape my daughter, uh, but then went on to say, but I did sexually abuse her, as though that was fine or that was okay, you know. So it it, I, it gave you a real insight into his. Uh, messed up mentality just completely deluded deluded yeah he he did the same when I confronted him I confronted him in hospital one day I just turned up and um I grabbed the opportunity to because I I felt this confrontation uh was important to me I needed to do this this is when he was imprisoned Fiona right yes and I got a call to say my father was going to hospital 
And I decided, I, I always knew I wanted to confront him. And I'd ask the guards, could I confront him when they had arrested him? And I was told no. So um, I decided that this was an opportunity to go and confront him. And I chickened out of it. I backed out. And then I got a call again three days later to say he was back in the hospital. And I knew it was now or never. And I drove all the way up to the Matter Hospital. I'll never forget it. It was a sunny day. I I wore a dress that was stuck to me because I was anticipation. I was so nervous. I, I was sweating. I was everything. But I, I knew I had to do this. And I went to the hospital and I just walked down the ward and I asked to see him. And I was, as I was walking down, as you, you casually look into a ward, next minute our, our eyes just met and he looks at me and I look at him and I just went to the desk and I said, I'm Patrick O'Brien's daughter, can I speak to him? The prison officer came out and he says, he won't speak to you. And I said, I'm not here for trouble. I'm just here to speak to him and to put things to bed, to put things to rest for me. And he went back in and he came back out and goes, he will speak to you, which was shocking. And of course, I was kind of ready to, to leg it out of there, but I didn't. I went in and I sat in front of him and he he swings his legs around. He'd been lying on the bed with his clothes on and he just turned his legs around. And I remember thinking, you're sitting too close to me. I don't like this. And of course, the smell, I could smell him again. And um, he said to me, I'm sorry. And he put his hand out to me and I shook his hand. And uh, he he started to go on about how, how hard things were for him, how he had no visitors, how the food was crap. Um, and then he, he started going, he said, these are the issues I have with you. He said, you use the word rape. And, and I kind of was taken so aback. I, to, to be honest with you, I wanted to punch his lights out. <laughs> that was my first reaction. And I knew I had to stay calm. I knew I had to get through this. And it's like, I just said to him, oh, really? Did I offend you? Does that word upset you? Because that's what it is. You raped me. And he just kind of, those, what I said to him, my response just didn't. It went over his head and he just moved on to his next issue. <laughs> the, even then, after being found guilty, just the casual sort of, you know, it, it was so casual to him. Flippant. Yeah, it was very flippant. But then again, he didn't he didn't do counselling or any sort of um, anything uh, in prison, any restorative justice or any counselling or anything to 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 uh, enlighten himself or to see what he'd done that was so wrong. He didn't do anything like that and was never made to. And I think that's wrong. I think it's that should be compulsory. They should get insight to what the, the damage that they've done. He was given an initial sentence and it was reviewed then. Yes, he was given 12 years. They suspended nine of them and they let him out on bail for the, for the three years. And that's when the, um, the public, the uproar, there was a big public uproar, which was amazing. And uh, Judge Carney revoked his bail and brought him back in to serve the three years. But in the meantime, the, in the meantime, I appealed the leniency of a sentence. And um, that took a year to get back into the appeals court. And um, you go in front of three judges then and they reviewed the case. It's not like going through a, a trial again. I just attended and they reviewed the, the case and they reversed it all. They What they did was they um, gave them the, the 12 years. They suspended three and he was to serve nine. But because of the laws in this country, when when you get a sentence, a third of that sentence is automatically taken off for good behaviour, which meant he was to serve six years. And that's where the six years came from. That's a frustrating process that so many people have to go through with this system. Um, and you, for, you forget, like when you see somebody is jailed for nine years or whatever, that there is remission, that there is a standard amount of time taken off that. And you have to go through the pain of appealing uh, the leniency of his sentence. Yes. And then in the end. It... And he could have appealed it 
Yeah, he could also have appealed it. He could he could have appealed the severity of a sentence too. So even though the ball was in my court that I did it, he could have done it as well. How difficult was it for you to have to go through that process? You've already got gotten your father convicted, but then to have his sentence be so lenient for you to have to challenge that and uh, just that whole process. How stressful is it on you as a victim to have to go through all of that trauma uh, to keep him in prison? Oh my God, the whole process was was just a roller coaster. It was such a learning curve because I just had never dealt with a court. I never dealt with anything to do with the law before in my life. So I had to... Um, I was thrown into this thing where I had to learn quick. Um, I had to learn um, when I went to the district court, I was sitting there all day with him sitting directly behind me where I could hear him, I could smell him. And I sat there all day with him there. Then we got sent to the criminal courts. My first appearance there, I didn't realise that there was uh, suites I could have gone to where I could be away from him. I didn't realise I could get court accompaniment um, where there was somebody that could sit with me and you know, keep me updated and informed. I didn't realise. Um, I remember when the day we were there for sentencing, they were going to adjourn it. And I got told down, I got called down from the uh, suite upstairs where I left my family. I was standing on my own talking to the detective and next minute we got called in and I went in on my own and the detective says to me, Fiona, it's going to be suspended today. And I went, hell no, hell no way am I going to. I'm here today and this is going to go ahead. I have myself geared up for this. I've made provisions for this. I've had to book into a hotel last night just to be up here. And I said, this is going ahead today. I said, if I have to be arrested myself and I just had that fight in me I had that determination that positivity that I'm this is it like this is going to happen and lucky enough it did go ahead that day and the first sentencing was was done and of course that went haywire and um the public got involved he got, got revoked and then of course after doing all that and going on the roller coaster of him getting um, brought back in and him getting locked up then to appealing it, to trying to fight for my appeal date, to um, making sure I I was going to be there for the appeal, to going all the way back up to the Central Criminal Court for that, to seeing him again, everything. It was just, it's just, it's overwhelming, it's huge, but I took positivity from it all. I turned my it, all my anger into fight and it was like, you are not going to beat me. This is not going to wear me down. I am going to face this. And I, I, I just knew, I think for a person um, who's trying to get over their abuse, they don't see how brave they are. They don't see that they survived the abuse itself. So nothing can be worse than that. So they just the system. The, the, how you're treated, uh, like how you're treated uh, in the justice system, the court procedure, nothing can be worse than the actual abuse itself. And people don't see that. Abuse victims don't see their own strength. The fact is, you survive that abuse. You can take. You can survive anything. And and even when I confronted him, I knew myself. Nothing can be worse than what you've already done to me. So I'm going to, if I can live through that and survive it, I can survive anything. And that's where I held it. I, I hung on to that with dear life. And it's just pure, you're not going to get the better of me. And I think nobody realises, no abuse victim realises that's inside them. They, they don't see that in themselves. And Another thing was the, the day I walked out of court, the fact that I stood up for myself, he only got the three years, he was released, but I felt superhuman because I stood up to them and I proved I was telling the truth. And just to do that was huge. And as I walked out of court, I remember thinking, like, my shame was just gone. Shame is a big thing for a victim of abuse. 
And most abusers use that shame as a weapon. And of course, that was what was wrong with me when I was going through the process of listening to the questions he was being asked and my response and my falling apart. It was shame. But the day I walked out of that courthouse, my shame was gone. And I can answer any question. I can talk about anything because I don't hold that shame anymore. That wasn't mine. That was his. He's the one now that has to live with that shame. Not that he does because I don't think he's it's he's capable of it. He has no shame. But that's what victims need to hang on to. Which you, you've become an incredible uh, advocate for for victims of abuse uh, it, it, since what happened, Fiona. And you're a fantastic speaker on this topic, and you're you're very learned on it, obviously, because you've lived through it. Um, you've spoken about that sentencing nightmare that you had to go through, but looking back at it now, like should there be a minimum sentence for for somebody you know who's convicted of rape of a minor? What 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 would be the appropriate sentence? Do you think, you know, a headline sentence? Do you, do, you have, do you have issue even with that whole system, you know, the mitigating factors and that that reduce yeah. people's sentences just yes. just because they plead guilty? I, re- I remember I remember his health. There was a lot of arguments around his health and could the prison cope with his health issues. And I, I remember thinking his health was not an issue when he was sexually abusing me. So why is it an issue now? I, I remember Judge Carney passing a remark about his good character. That floored me uh, because this, he's never been in trouble with the guards. None of that should have been an issue. We need mandatory sentencing in, in this country. The judges need to have a guideline. I don't think any sentence would can compensate for what a person lived through or went through. But it gives you a sense of worth. I felt when he was, first of all, when he wasn't going to serve any sentence, I felt so worthless. And then when he only got, was going to serve only three years, like it, you, you balance it. It was so unbalanced. And I think if, if they had said to me, I don't think there should be any sort of suspended sentence for um, rape or abuse. I don't think there should be anything taken off a sentence for good behaviour. Um, I think those exceptions need to be brought in. That needs to be brought in for just rape and abuse. I understand it in criminal or any or the sort of um, criminal act. Yes, I, I understand it there. But when it comes to rape and abuse, um, uh, especially to, to, to in connection to a child, there should not be any sort of um, it's like a reward, and and that's wrong. And I felt it. I felt it was just um, it, it just for me. It it needed to be balanced, and there was no balance to it. If they had it given him the whole twelve years, I would have walked out that day going well. That's kind of okay, you know. He deserved it, and that's what he should serve. But that wasn't the case. Just to 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 take nine years off a sentence, you know, simply because the person pleaded guilty, um, you know, and they're held and all yeah. that. Like it's 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 quite extreme. It's crazy. Yeah, it it, it was a reward. It, it was a reward for for pleading guilty, but yet he didn't do it. He did that. He got rewarded for his self-preservation, and that's what it was. He pleaded guilty for himself. So the details of his abuse didn't come out. The details of what he did and the things he did and how he did it and everything else didn't come out because he didn't want to look like the monster that he is. And and he got rewarded for that. And that just doesn't make sense. You, 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 you've you answered it kind of in many ways already, but one question we're asking everybody that we're speaking to on this is, it's a very general question, but has the justice system in this country let you down? Big time. And it's still letting me down. You know, I'm, I'm in the process now taking a civil case against the guards and against um, the HSC um, because I need to, I need people held accountable for letting me down and um, for not doing their job 
They have these jobs for a reason and they need to do these jobs and do them to their the best of their ability. And it wasn't done in my case. So I am now going to go on and take that fight on and prove I'm not lying. I did go to the guards in the 90s. I did report them to people and I was let down. And that's huge. Just to give people an overview, that as you say, um, you went to the Gardaí many years prior. Yes. There is evidence for that. Yes. And you also are taking a case against the HSE um, as, as there is some evidence that uh, certain people would have known about allegations of abuse many, many, many years before you ever made a complaint. Where are we with that civil case now? What's what, what's what's the process? What stage in the process are you at with that? The cases are where the guards the guards have given their defence. Now uh, this case has been active since um, twenty thirteen. It was only um, after my father was found guilty that kind of the anger kicked in at the failure that was highlighted. Of the guards. See, I believe the guards did investigate the case and that there was just no evidence to be found. It was only when I started investigating my own case did I realise that I had so, so much evidence was there that I, I got angry and I decided a solicitor approached me and we got together to see kind of what kind of case would I have a case because we've got the statute of limitations. So, um, this is where we're at now is that we've we've um, sent uh, the guards have sent a defense. We sent a notice of particular to the guard to the guards. They sent a defense back. They're denying that I ever spoke to them in the 1990s, completely denying it, even though my father refers to it when he was arrested the second time. He refers to the fact that the guards spoke to him the first time and family members remember it. So. They're completely denying it. Why, why is it important for you to take a case against the state? Because I, I, I want them held accountable for their lack in the way they handled and do handle historic sex abuse cases. They, they're um, such um, big issues I have with the fact that uh, even the, the, the detective, when he first got allocated my case, my case was his first historic sex abuse case. And he had no training, no nothing to guide him, no guidelines. Only for we worked so well together that we we kind of guided each other in certain things. But there's no training there. There's no um proper procedure in place. There was no procedure about how to interview me um, how to um, the best way to do the interview. Like I now um, feel that a, a, an abuse victim should be interviewed in two halves with a couple of weeks between each two interviews so that they are not feeling overwhelmed, they're not feeling under pressure. It's enormous to try and put all the details of what happened to you on a piece of paper in a matter of a couple of hours. Just like everybody struggles when they're like yourself when you're interviewing me, how can we put all this into half an hour? How can we put all this into an hour? That's a huge um, thing to try and do about what's important, what's not important, um, what's more important than, than, than what we think is important. You know what I mean? Like it's just so confusing and hard and, and the stress of that. So, I recommended that a victim be um, uh, interviewed in two halves with two weeks between them, that uh, a detective should um, give contact details, phone details and email details. Um, so they're uh, constantly in touch with one another, but also that the, the victim has to um, realise that this is a job for the guard. He's not there for your beck and call 24-7. You have to um, stand back a bit and I used to double check, are you working today? Is it possible to speak to you today? If you're not working, I'll speak to you tomorrow. Things like that. There was a mutual understanding between me and the detective. And I found that this is what should um, help 
and me highlighting it will help the next victim coming along feel comfortable in in meeting with the guards and how to be interviewed. I, I think in many ways, Fiona, your case was was one of the one of the first major ones that I can think of anywhere where, where you came forward, you waved your anonymity, you know, um, and you were a very public face. Uh, and in many ways, in the years following, we have seen other victims of abuse doing that. And they're doing it because they want their abusers named. To do that, they have to waive their own anonymity. Um, in many ways, you paved the way for that. But what what is what do you think is is there anything wrong with that system that you know the victim the onus is so much on the victim to to come forward and to tell their story and to have their name out there and it, just just in order to have their abuser named and shamed is there anything wrong with that system? Do you think there's a lot um, around it that can make it a, um, a bit easier for the victim? I remember the. Um, I had a major issue with, first of all, my victim impact statement. That is, a, I presumed, was a way to get my uh, voice, my experience, my opinion, my me talking about the uh, effects of my abuse out there. But, but what I didn't know was that my father was going to read it and his legal team is going to have to approve some of the stuff that was in it which they refused to do. Certain things were taken out of it. So um, a lot of the victim's rights um, are taken away. My my right to free speech and um, to freely speak about how the abuse affected me was taken from me because he objected to certain things. Um, I had to ask permission to waive my anonymity, which I thought was completely wrong. The judge granted me permission to do it, but that was wrong also. That was, I shouldn't have had to ask permission to do that. That's my right and um, it should never have been an issue. And, um, you know, it's just, there's so many small things that could make it so easy. I didn't realise, I, I went to visit the prison and I didn't realise that um, I could um that that the, the special I, I had to speak to the prison liaison officer and let and I wanted to um give my permission and to let to, to give them notification that I wanted wanted to be notified when my father leaves the prison. Um that that was huge for me. So anytime he was say sent to a hospital or um had to attend something they had to ring me and tell me. Now, not a lot of victims realise that that is their right, that they have that right to do that. And I also, a lot of them didn't realise that they had a right to find out the release date. Um, I I have an issue with the fact that um, the sex offenders register is not public. So I don't know where he is now. I find that a huge issue at the moment. Because I, I, I want to feel safe. I want to feel secure. And knowing where he is is something that, that is needed to make me feel safe and secure. And I don't know where he is. So there's so much that needs to be looked into and so much that needs to be overhauled. I could go on for days complaining and giving out about certain things. But there are valid points. One thing that you, you, you have advocated for in the past is for sex offenders or paedophiles to, to be electronically tagged when they're released from prison. You, 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 are you in favour of that still? Or what do you think about that kind of oh, system? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, like, the, the, the sex offenders register is, is not public here. So only if a guard goes looking to where this person is, it's on that person's head to notify the guards where they're living and where they are. And if they were tagged, the guards wouldn't have to rely on the actual um, offender. They would have their own system to rely on and they could put in and find out where that person is 24 seven. Because we have to accept that these people are going to live among us. They are going to live um, 
beside a school, beside a church. There's no area, kind of unless you can find a, an island somewhere where we, can, where we can put them on. There's no area that, that, that they're going to go that's not got children. In regards, I mean, they can walk along a the beach. They can, they can go anywhere. And, and we've no way of monitoring that. And I think the only way to monitor is, is to tag them. And for, for that to be uh, the tag to be monitored 24-7. Now, I, I know it sounds like it, it'd be a huge task, but with the, with the, um, this day and age, that shouldn't be as big a task as it sounds. Because we're better off knowing that that man two doors away is a registered sex offender than not knowing. The high-profile case of Patrick O'Brien made headlines across Ireland in 2016 when he was sentenced to 12 years in prison with the final three suspended for raping his daughter Fiona Doyle. The 74-year-old had pleaded guilty at the Central Criminal Court to 16 sample counts of rape and indecent assault of his daughter at McIntosh Park Pottery Road in Dunleary in the 1970s and 1980s. In this section of our interview, Fiona spoke about that difficult court process, how she feels it is still weighed against the victim and what she thinks can be done in the future to change it for the better. On the, the day in the district court, my father was served with the book of evidence. I found that very, very hard to take because when I asked for a copy of the book of evidence, I got told I wasn't entitled to it. Now, I think that is so wrong. He got a copy of everything, of everybody's interview, what everybody had to say. Um, I got nothing. Nothing. I wasn't pre-told that so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. Nothing. To this day, I still don't have it. And I think that is wrong. I think that's another thing that I had a major issue with. Um, like, it's these simple little things that can make the whole procedure so... Oh, I won't say... Yeah, it's easy, it's kind of... Hand, uh, bearable to handle. Um is is just being kept updated, being um, uh, considered, being informed on things and being given what he's been given. He was given a book of evidence. I should have been given one. The system just seems to be so heavily weighed against the victim. Um, and as I say, had your father not pleaded guilty, you would have had to uh, take the stand and it would have all taken been very much about you being believed people would have to try and believe you because i mean that's the thing about sexual abuse isn't it you know it's very hard to to uh prove it like there's you're not gonna have dna or anything like that you just have to believe the victim um and that's that's the hard part about all of this is that that throughout the entire process um you have to be believed and that, and that, and that that is that must be very diff- very difficult to 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 manage to have people not believe you or to have to have people doubt you. But see, people don't realize. Um, afterwards, I got a copy. I wrote to the DPP and I requested a copy of my file under the Freedom of Information Act. And when I got it, I found it very shocking that um, during the trial, during the case, my um, record was looked into. Now, um, I was involved in security on my build-up to my case. I was a female bouncer. I was head bouncer at a nightclub. And I actually had a, a GBH um, assault against me. And um, uh, that was actually in, in the file. And I found that very upsetting that that was going to be brought up if it had gone to trial, my past. And I also remember stressing, I mean, people know my background now. It's all out there. Um, it's, a, it's out there in a book that I had different partners, that my children had different fathers. That was all part of um, the a backlash of my abuse, as in my choice of men. But that was going to be used against me. And 
I was finding that at the time, before I realised he was going to plead guilty, I was finding all this very hard to um, comprehend and, and to handle that my my uh, record, my children's fathers, my sex life was going to be brought into it. And um, I was going to go through with it, but I, I, I was dreading it. I, I don't know how I would have coped with it. Well, in the end, I brought it all out myself in the book, but I brought it out in, in with the explanation of why it happened. But you don't get that in court. It's just all, you know, all against your character. And um, I found that all so um, unnecessary. And, and, and my heart breaks that other victims have to go through that. Uh, that they have to sit there and listen to their private lives and everything else be, be used against them when when it's all part of the effects of abuse in the first place. Would, would you blame p- victims for not coming forward? Because look at the process you had to go through. OK, your father pleaded guilty, so you got some justice. But even still, you had to go through so much. Is, is, this, is it worth it? Is it worth it for, for, you know, what would be your message to victims of abuse about going through all of that? Is it, is it, is it worth going through the process? Most definitely. Life after, um, life after justification is 100% better than life beforehand. But I really don't want a victim to beat themselves up because they're, they don't want to be identified. They don't want to waive their anonymity. And that's okay too, because family-related sex abuse is the highest rated in Ireland. And the pressure a person, when it's family-related sex abuse, is on them from the whole family is huge. The pressure to hide it, to keep quiet. We don't want anybody to know that that's our dad. We don't want anybody to know that that's our brother. And we don't want anybody to know that we could have known and we did nothing about it. And the, the, the victim has to carry everybody else's guilt on their shoulders. And the some of them just cannot go against their family's wishes and identify themselves because of the backlash that they're going to receive. And I thoroughly understand that. And I never want any victim to feel any way that they've let themselves or anyone else down for not doing it. Because I know what that pressure is like. Because you came forward and in the way that you did, and even though your father admitted his guilt, you have lost family over this. You've lost friendships, lifelong relations with people simply because you came forward about abuse that you suffered. Yes, I have lost. I have no contact with my own children, with grandchildren, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins. I'm, I feel kind of uh, like I'm on a little island, that it's, it's just me. Now I have, a, I have children that I do see and I've got grandchildren I do see and I have a fabulous husband. But sometimes you just feel so alone because life is never normal. I do not have a normal life and I never will. And that's what people need to accept. Like I spent years trying to make my life look normal. Um, I spent years fighting my own feelings on things and suppressing them to make things look normal. And life now is just, people know me. They know I'm not the normal person on the street. They know I have issues and they know why I have issues. And, um, you know, this is just, I just have to accept that this is my life and I'm just going to make the best of what I have of it. I am not going to beat myself up because certain people don't speak to me or, or anything like that, you know. You just have to or you, you just wouldn't get through it all. You just wouldn't cope. Um, your your father now he's an elderly man and he's probably we believe he's living in a nursing home, um, being cared for. 
Um, but even still, that that fear you were talking about, you just not just 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 the not knowing exactly where he is. It, maybe it's it feels somewhat irrational, like in the at the age of eighty something, he's not really going to do any damage. But there's still that fear, I suppose, isn't there? That he's out there and he's free. Well, you see, there's still certain things I need, and one of them is is when he dies, I need to go. And I I told him this when I confronted him that time in the hospital. I told him that I don't care how anybody else feels. I am going to his funeral and I'm not going to to say goodbye to him or to mourn him. I'm going to watch him go into the ground. I need that. I need to see the end of him. And it's the only way it will end for me. And my fear of not knowing where he is and not being able to keep tabs on where he is. When he was in prison, I had I was able to keep updated on his health. I was informed when he went to hospital. So I, I was I was okay then. I got, I knew when he was in prison, if he died, I'd be notified. But now, where he is now, I'm not going to be notified because family members won't, he doesn't want me notified and family members won't want, want me notified because they don't want me um, being there. And I desperately need that. And that's my fear. My fear is it's going to be taken from me what I need to progress. That's closure for you, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, this whole experience the, the, from, from the very beginning to the very end is therapeutic. It might not seem that way to other people. Some of it might seem horrific and very hard, and it is. But everything I have done on this journey, from confronting him, from going to the prison, from um, every interview I've done, from speaking out, from waving my am- anonymity, it's all been therapeutic and it's all helped me to move forward and the final thing is seeing him go into that ground and it's not going to be taken from me and that's how I feel I don't care what anybody else thinks I'm going to be there and he's like 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 my mother that I was not my mother's and it was only afterwards that I realized I needed that so the same mistake is not going to be made again second time. I know what I need to move on and I'm going to get it. <laughs> if you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, you can call the Samaritans at any time on 116-123. You can also call the Rape Crisis Centre on one 800 8888 You can find more episodes of Shattered Lives on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Thank you for listening.